So over the last several weeks, we've gone through chapter after chapter after chapter of Hosea, and we have seen God pronouncing judgment on Israel over and over and over and over again. He goes through a list of their sins. He describes their sins in very graphic and illustrative ways. And then he describes the judgment that is coming. Their sin led God to promise them judgment. And then last week in Hosea 13, we saw that judgment described in three very graphic pictures. And he used terms like, I'm going to be a bear robbed of her cubs to you. I'm going to be a lion that rips open your chest. I'm going to come upon you like a leopard. Really doesn't need explanation, does it? You understand those terms. Israel, the northern kingdom, will meet its end in a very horrific way at the hands of Assyria. And they will be judged. Hosea 13 made that very clear. Nothing's going to stop this judgment. But in Hosea 14 this week, we get a little bit of change in pace. Thank goodness. This week is not about judgment. This week is about repentance and restoration. And the color probably isn't the best, red and black. That kind of looks kind of grim. But I was in a rush this morning, so. It's not... It's all about repentance and restoration. Yahweh extends to them an olive branch. A branch that offers to Israel full restoration and the unmerited and undeserved love of Yahweh. If they would repent. Chapter 14, he's going to prove that this judgment does not mark the end of his relationship with his chosen people. He is not done with Israel. The promises that God made to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those promises are still good. The promises he made to David are still good. And Hosea begins the chapter with a prayer. It's a recommended prayer for Israel. It's the first point on your handout, the prayer of repentance. The prayer of repentance. If you look at verse 1, Hosea 14.1, he says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Hosea is not giving a suggestion here. He's not recommending they return. This is an imperative. It's a command. They are being commanded by Yahweh through Hosea to return, to go back to Yahweh. This is similar to what he said in Hosea 12, verse 6. Therefore, Return to your God, observe kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. That idea of return is the Hebrew word shuv. It means to repent, to turn away from what you're doing and do something else. And in 12.6, repentance is defined by merely changing their behavior. He's emphasizing if you're going to repent, you need to change what you're doing. Stop sinning. Start obeying the laws of Yahweh. Live as Yahweh has commanded you to live. Did they do it in chapter 12? No. 12.6, he says they need to repent. 12.7, he describes Israel, a merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself and all my labors. They will find in me 
no iniquity which would be sin. They're called to repentance and they look at themselves and say, hey, I got nothing to repent of. I have no sin. They wouldn't even admit or acknowledge that they were in sin. And they certainly didn't change their behavior. The other time where there appeared to be some level of repentance was in Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. This is a pseudo-shallow false repentance that only sought what God could give them. He can heal us. He can restore us. He can give us back our property. He can give us back our, our possessions, our wealth. He'll make us prosperous again. All they wanted here was to avoid judgment. They didn't want to actually return to Yahweh. They just didn't want the punishment for their sin. That's not what he's asking them to do here. Not what he's commanding them to do in Hosea 14. Look at verse 1 again. He says, return to the Lord your God. Return to Yahweh your God. Don't just return to a set of religious practices. Don't just restart some behaviors. He's not telling them to merely resume right behavior. You could translate this sentence a different way. Return Israel as far as Yahweh your God. Don't return just as far as your behavior. Return all the way. Go all the way home to Yahweh. As one commentator wrote, please come all the way home to God. Make this a full change. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, you have failed. And you have failed miserably. And he says that in verse 1, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Hosea has made this charge before. We've heard this several times. Hosea 4, verse 5, he says, So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. Hosea 5, 5, Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. Now, when you hear they stumbled, what do you think of? They fell into sin, right? You'll hear people today, well, I fell into sin this week. Like they tripped over something and they fell into sin. That's not what he's talking about here. The idea here doesn't refer to falling into sin, but it, falling into disaster. To fall into ruin. To fall into destruction. Hosea 13.9, he says, It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. It's to your ruin. Sin always brings a consequence. You can never sin and get away with it. It's never free. It always costs you something. There's an interesting verse in Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2, verse 19 he says, your own wickedness will correct you. And your apostasies will reprove you. Know therefore and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. And the dread of me is not in you. Your sin is what's going to discipline you. It's going to bring pain on you. 
It has deserved a judgment, and that judgment is coming. You are facing divine chastening. God is coming for you. It's best that you repent now. Go back to Yahweh. Believe the promises that He made are true. Trust in the character of God as being compassionate and gracious. How many times in the Old Testament did God go to Israel and say, I am compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness? He said it over and over again. Exodus 34, 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. He wanted to remind them over and over again of his nature so that they would understand when you sin, come back. Repent, turn back to me. And Hosea is pleading the same argument. Judgment is coming. You have a compassionate and a merciful God. Please repent. Go back. The question here is why? Why would he tell them to repent? I just said judgment's coming. It's not going to stop the judgment. The nation of Israel is going to be destroyed. It won't save the nation. But it's never too late for the individual sinner to repent. It's never too late for an individual to say, I'm done with this, I'm going back to God. Better to face God's judgment as a nation when you personally have repented than for you to face God's judgment and still be in your sin. Paul told the Corinthians not to receive the grace of God in vain. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's never too late to repent. It's never too late to turn from sin and go back. And Hosea wants to make sure that they understand that they must do this. They must truly repent of their sin. They must truly turn back to Yahweh. And he's going to help them do that. He's going to give them a lesson in what true repentance looks like. It's not what you did in chapter 6 or in chapter 12. He's going to show them how to repent. And he's going to do that by giving them a model prayer. A prayer that they can use to help them in their repentance. Look at verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord. He offers them a model prayer and he says, take words with you. Here are the words you take to Yahweh. He's not offering an altar call. Repeat this prayer after me. That's not what he's doing. He's just helping them understand what are the elements of true repentance. A truly repent, repentant prayer will sound like this. Kind of like the disciples' prayer, the Lord's prayer. It's a model of what true prayer should sound like. Take them with you and go back to Yahweh with these words. So what should they say when they go back to Yahweh? Verse 2 again. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. This is a drastic change from their repentance in chapter 6. He encourages them to ask for forgiveness. 
if you read chapter 6, the first few verses, when they go and they say we're going to repent, there's no mention of sin. There's not even the slightest indication that they're in sin. In fact, they say the exact opposite. There's no sin in us. Their focus is purely on what Yahweh can give them and what Yahweh can do to them or do for them. Hosea tells them, go back to Yahweh and ask him to remove your iniquity. Remove your guilt. The term take away here is the, it's an interesting Hebrew word. It's nasah. If you're going to spell it in English, it says N-A-S-A. Nasa. That's how I always remember the vocab in Hebrew. Nasa means to lift up. And that's what this word means. Lift up my guilt. Take it off of me. Pick it up, get it off my shoulder. This same word is used throughout the Old Testament to describe forgiveness. The lifting up of guilt. Exodus 34, verse 7. Speaking of God, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives, who lifts iniquity, who lifts guilt off people. Numbers 14, 18, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity. Again, same word, lifting, lifting guilt, removing it from you. When David was praying about his guilt and his sin, he used the same word, Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I didn't hide my guilt from you. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You lifted the guilt of my sin. Just remember, the next time you hear NASA, God lifts guilt. Yahweh's willingness to lift the guilt of sin, to remove their iniquity, to forgive them, is a trait that's unique to Yahweh. No one else is willing to forgive like Yahweh. I mean, honestly, if you betrayed me the number of times Israel betrayed Yahweh, I would have been done with you a long time ago. How many times do they spit in his face and tell him, we don't want you? How many times do they run back to him and say, no, we really do want you, and then lie about it? How often, if this was any human they would have been wiped out a long time before this. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? Only Yahweh forgives. Only Yahweh lifts iniquity. But all didn't lift iniquity. He demanded more. Molech didn't lift iniquity. He demanded you sacrifice your babies. Hosea instructs Israel to go back to Yahweh. Ask him to forgive you. Ask for him to lift your iniquity, to remove it from your record. True repentance requires that we honestly admit our sinful state. It requires that we acknowledge our guilt, that we accept that guilt, and that we go to the Lord and we ask Him to remove it because He's the only one who can. You can't remove it. I can't remove it. This church can't remove your guilt from you. Only God can remove it. 
And he only removes it when you go back to him and you're honest about your guilt and you tell him, I'm guilty. And if you're like Israel and you're unwilling to admit that, don't expect him to lift it. It's amazing how many times I've had people tell me, well, I sinned. Well, did you go back and confess it to the Lord? No. Why not? You're still carrying that with you. Confess, repent, turn from it. They were to ask Yahweh to lift their guilt, remove their guilt from them. Verse 2 again, and receive us graciously. This little phrase really stopped me when I was looking at it. The Hebrew here is take good. That's all it says. Take good. You can translate that another way. Take what is good. And again, this is a Hebrew imperative, but it's an imperative or a command that's going from the individual to God. So it's not them commanding God to do something. It's an emphatic request. It's like pleading with God. Please do this. Take what is good. Their first request, remove our guilt. Second request, take what is good. Judge us with grace and with mercy. If we can put it in just human terms. Look at me and see what you can find that is good. Find anything good in me, in my life, in my work, in my words, and then judge me according to just that. And ignore all my failures, ignore all my sin, ignore all the times that I rebelled against you. Just take what is good. And let that be the lens through which you see me. That's a plea for grace. Unmerited, undeserved grace. There's no presumption here that God is going to do something for them. There's no presumption here that God must heal them or that God must forgive them. There's no presumption that God must reward them for something. This is not works righteousness of them saying, look at all the good things I've done. This is humble dependence. It's a recognition that their position is not guaranteed. Gone is the assumption of blessing that we saw in Hosea 6. Gone is the pride and the arrogance of Hosea 5.5 and Hosea 7.10. Gone is the hypocrisy of professing Yahweh with their lips, but living reprobate lives. They knew that their works were at best meager and worthless. And for Yahweh to accept them would be an act of just pure grace. True repentance and a desire to love God is always marked by a life of increasing holiness. It is always marked by a life that is always pursuing obedience. Not perfectly, not in perfection, but in direction. Dr. Street likes to tell people, look, God doesn't expect you to be perfect, but he does expect you to be growing. Deuteronomy 6.18, you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you, and that you may go and go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore, swore to give to your fathers. Hosea tells Israel, go back to Yahweh. Ask him to lift your iniquity, to lift your guilt. And then start living in accordance with those commands. Start living in accordance with the covenant that God has made with you. Verse 2 again, that we may present the fruit of our lips. 
the English here just leaves out an important detail. The term fruit is not in the original Hebrew. It's not in the original Hebrew text. That actually comes from the Greek and the Syriac translations. That's why the NASB says the fruit of our lips. The Hebrew here says bulls, except the bulls of our lips. And you might say, well, bulls must mean something other than a cow or a steer. And no, actually, it doesn't. It's used 133 times in the Old Testament, and every single time this word is used, it refers to a bull or a steer. What's interesting, though, is of those 133 times, 131 of them refer to bulls that are going to be sacrificed to Yahweh or be used in some kind of sacrifice. Only twice in the entire New Testament, two out of 133 uses, is it used to refer to a bull in general. That's in Genesis 32.15 and Psalm 22.12. Those sacrifices of bulls were pictures of God restoring the relationship between him and his people. They were pictures of what Christ would ultimately do. And when the sacrifice was completed, they would burn the sacrifice. It was called a burnt offering. And if you read through Leviticus, what you find out is that smoke rises to Yahweh, and the smell and the aroma of it is pleasing to him. Here, Hosea uses the image of a sacrificial bull to picture the restoration of a relationship with Yahweh and the resulting praise of their lips. Their genuine repentance and turning from their sin to Yahweh, Yahweh's gracious forgiveness and reception of them results in them continually praising and worshiping and glorifying Him with their lips. That's why the Syriac and the Greek translate it as fruit. And the praise here, grammatically, follows immediately after the forgiving of their iniquity. It's the direct result of the forgiveness and the grace that they receive from Yahweh. True repentance is always a plea for grace. It's always seeking something you don't deserve. And when God answers that prayer, true repentance always results in a life spent worshiping Yahweh. There is another hallmark of true repentance. That's in this prayer. True repentance includes an honest confession of sin. Not just merely admitting that you're guilty. That's easy to do. Okay, God, I sinned. That's not what he's talking about. There's an honest confession and naming specific sins committed. And Hosea now is going to list their two biggest sins. Hosea 14, verse 3. They are to say, Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. What's the first sin against Yahweh? Not trusting Yahweh. Multiple times throughout the book, Hosea has mentioned that Israel was looking to Assyria. They knew judgment was coming, and so they would pay off the Assyrian king. And then the Assyrians weren't doing what they wanted, so they'd run down to Egypt, and they'd try to pay off that king. 
and they were trying to make alliances. They were depending on everybody but who? Yahweh. Hosea 5, verse 13, when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob, the great king, is what that word means. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. Hosea 7, verse 11, so Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. Hosea 8, verse 9, for they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Hosea 12, 1, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind continually. He multiplies lies and violence. Moreover, he makes a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. Over and over and over again, Hosea condemns them for going to Assyria rather than turning to Yahweh. And now in their repentance, Hosea tells them, go back to Yahweh and take these words with them. We are no longer going to go to Assyria. Assyria will not save us. The Hebrew here is emphatic. You can translate it this way. Assyria will never save us. This is a complete rejection of Assyria as being their savior. Assyria was all about bleeding Israel dry. They were willing to take as much of their wealth and money as they could. And if they couldn't get any more money, they were going to take them over no matter what. Assyria had no intention of saving Israel. And it would be Assyria who would ultimately destroy Israel. So for them to trust in Assyria was foolish. Verse 3, we will not ride on horses. The horse was considered a weapon of war. And to multiply horses was to expand your military. And in in that sense, it is to trust in your military rather than trusting in Yahweh. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. You notice the dichotomy there. You can trust in your horses or you can boast in Yahweh, but you can't do both. Psalm 33, 17, a horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Clear, unequivocal, your horses can't save you. Isaiah 31, 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Over and over again, the Old Testament says, do not trust in military might. Trusting in your military is foolish. God can wipe out the greatest military the world has ever seen, and he can do it with one little angel in one night. If you're trusting in the U.S. military to save America, you're about to be severely disappointed. It cannot save us. This is why the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 17, 16, forbade Israel from trusting in their military and multiplying horses. Deuteronomy 17, 16, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Solomon disobeyed this command. I won't read the verses. 1 Kings 10, 28, he goes and he gets horses from Egypt to build his military. 
completely ignored the command. Hosea here instructs Israel to return to Yahweh and say, look, we're done with our military alliances. We're done trusting in Assyria. And we're done riding horses. We're done trusting in our military might and prowess. It's finished. See the clear confession of sin? Specific sins? But that was not the only way they sinned. There is another sin. Verse 3 again. Nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. And again, the statement is emphatic. You can translate it this way. Nor, uh, we will never say again. This is a complete abandonment of their idolatry. The idolatry that they had been practicing for over 200 years, they are now done with. Completely. It is a final and last denial of Baal. A complete rejection. They will finally see Baal for what he is. He is a lifeless, mute lump of metal that can do nothing for them. And he has never done anything for them. Notice there to say that Baal was the work of our hands. They finally realize, at some point in the future, they're finally going to realize, he's just something you made. Turn over to Jeremiah 44. I want you to see this. This is an interesting passage. Jeremiah 44 is like dripping with sarcasm. It's how you know God has a sense of humor. Because he really does describe the futility and foolishness of worshiping an idol. Of bowing down before a piece of stone or wood. Isaiah 44, verses 13 through 17. He says... Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, the wood, he makes into, an, into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my god. Dripping with sarcasm. Utterly foolish to make an idol and to fall down before it and worship it as a god. And Hosea, back to Hosea, Hosea encourages Israel to recognize this truth and to admit it. Baal cannot, will not, and will never save Israel. He doesn't have the power to. 
He's a harsh taskmaster who demands sacrifices, but he provides no benefit. He provides no care. He provides no protection. He just demands and demands and demands and demands. He is the exact opposite of Yahweh. Into verse 3. The end of their prayer, for in you the orphan finds mercy. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh is depicted as being compassionate. And his compassion is especially displayed for the orphan and the widow. And hurting or harming an orphan or a widow was prohibited. Expressly forbidden. Exodus 22, 22. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. And if you disobeyed this command, the very next verse says, If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry, and my anger will be kindled, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children will become fatherless. You afflict an orphan, your children are going to become orphans. Psalm 10.14 says Yahweh is the helper of the orphan. Psalm 68.5 says he is the father of the fatherless. You want to catch the ire of Yahweh? You really want to tick them off? Start messing with orphans and widows. Start mistreating the helpless. Yahweh's love and compassion are clearly demonstrated for the weakest and most helpless in society. He cares for those that society despises and rejects. Here's what's interesting. Hosea 14.3 now pictures Israel as an orphan. Alone, without a father or mother. And Hosea goes to this little child and says, just return back to your parent. Go back to your father. Acknowledge your guilt. Ask for forgiveness. Confess your sin. Abandon your false gods. Seek after him and he will respond to you with compassion and with mercy. Like the prodigal son returning home. He will love you and he will protect you just as he loves and protects all orphans. This is the prayer that Israel needs to pray. A prayer of heartfelt sorrow and repentance. A prayer of contrition, of turning back to trusting in Yahweh and depending solely on Him. This is the model prayer for Israel, and it's a good model for you and I. Like Israel, Christians sometimes think that their sin prevents them from going back. I can't go back to Jesus right now. Look what I just did. Jesus came to save sinners. And if you're in sin, he came for you. So repent, go back, confess your guilt, confess your specific sins. Ask him to forgive you and to be gracious to you. Ask him to lift the iniquity and guess what? He will respond. And when he does respond, worship him for it. Offer him praise. Israel in the future will turn around and depend on that same grace and mercy that you and I depend on. In the future, they will come to a saving knowledge of Christ, and they will pray a prayer very similar to what you just heard. And the question is, 
how is Yahweh going to respond to Israel? Once they pray this prayer, what's Yahweh going to do? There are some today who say Yahweh is done with Israel. And they're forever cut off. Is that what Yahweh says? Hosea 14.4. Yahweh says, oh, sorry, this is point two on your handout. The promised restoration. Hosea 14.4. I will heal their apostasy. Yahweh here is not the father. He's not presenting himself as a father. He's presenting himself as a physician. As a doctor. And he's going to heal their wound. And they are wounded. We read Hosea 5.12 earlier. Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound. When Israel repents, God will no longer be like a moth to Israel. Or a lion or a leopard or a bear robbed of her cubs. Yahweh will be a caring, nurturing physician who cares for Israel and heals them. And the healing here is holistic. It describes a healing that is all-encompassing, both physical and spiritual. Israel will be completely renewed. Completely restored. And restored from what? What's their wound? Their backsliding. It's really interesting. Hosea uses the exact same word he used in verse 1 for return. It's the same word. They will be healed of their turning from Yahweh. They've turned away from him and they've rejected him and they will be healed of their idolatry, of their sinful lifestyles and all the damaging effect of that sin. And what did Israel do to earn this? What sacrifices are they going to do to get God to do this for them? Hosea 14.4 again. I will love them freely. Yahweh will choose to love his people. People. The term freely here is actually a, a word used for free will offerings. Free will offerings were sacrifices you made just because you wanted to. It was something that you did because that's what you wanted to do. There was no constraint, there was no one pushing you to do this. Yahweh will love them again for the same reason he loved them the first time just because he wants to. Undeserved, unearned, unmerited and unconditional love. And again, does this describe anyone in this room? To be betrayed and rejected and abused for so long and yet turn around and say, I'm going to love you unconditionally despite all that you've done. We've seen this picture before. Remember Hosea 3? That wonderful time when we only had five verses? Hosea 3.1 Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Remember the story of Hosea and Gomer? Hosea was told to go love a harlot, go love a woman who is unfaithful, and he goes out and he finds this woman named Gomer. And she goes out, she marries Hosea, Hosea cares for her, he loves her, he is faithful to her, and yet she runs off and she goes and finds all these other lovers. 
And she attributes all her provision to these other lovers. And she shuns the love of Hosea. And right when you think Hosea would be perfectly justified in calling for a divorce, God turns around and says, Hosea 3.1, go back and love her again. Like you just met her. She didn't deserve it. And neither does Israel. Hosea 14.4 again, my anger has turned away from them. What a comfort that must be to Israel. To the few people in Israel who are still faithful, who are still a faithful remnant, to hear that Yahweh's anger at some point will be turned away. And again, he uses the same word for return. To turn away. Israel now hears some soothing and some comforting news. Psalm 78, 38. But he, speaking of Yahweh, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and he did not arouse all of his wrath. Isaiah describes Yahweh turning from his anger when Yahweh would heal their backsliding. Isaiah 12, verse 1. Then you will say on that day, the day that I turn from my anger, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Yes, the judgment they deserve is still coming. Yet at some point in the future, for those that repent and turn to Christ, there will be mercy. Yahweh will once again demonstrate his love for Israel, and he will accept them back, and he will love them freely, and he will restore them to their full covenant relationship. And that restoration now takes Hosea's focus. And Yahweh is now going to explain that restoration using three similes. Hosea 14.5, I will be like the dew to Israel. He's used dew here, the morning dew, several times. He used it to describe the the faithlessness of Israel as being passing and temporary. They're always turning away from Yahweh. And their faithfulness lasts as long as the morning dew. It's here one moment and gone the next. He used it again in 13.3 to describe Israel in the coming judgment. And they were disappearing like the dew. And here he uses dew, not as a picture of judgment, but he uses it as a picture of Yahweh's blessing and love poured out on the nation. Dew was often used as a simile of favor. It was a picture of favor. It could be favor from a king. Proverbs 19.12, the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like the dew on the grass. Dew is used to describe the favor and the blessing of Yahweh. Psalm 133, it is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountain of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. He's speaking about dew. It's viewed as a gift. It's a gift from God. Haggai 1, verse 10, Therefore because of you the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. It's a gift that's taken away to those who are disobedient. God withdraws his blessing and favor. It is given to those who pursue Yahweh, who love Yahweh. Zechariah 8, verse 12. 
for there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. Israel, the, the, the land, is a dry and arid place. Any kind of moisture is really, really accepted and loved. And the vegetation just sprouts when it shows up. And the dew of God's love will bring new life and new vitality to the nation of Israel. Hosea 14.5 again, He will blossom like the lily. Again, this is a picture to describe the restoration of Israel. He refers to Israel itself. The dew of Yahweh's love would cause Israel to blossom with beauty and splendor. And he describes Israel as a lily. A lily. He describes them as a beautiful flower. When God restores Israel, they will be as beautiful and have the splendor of a flower. Hosea 14.5 again, and he will take the root. He will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. Again, he here is Israel. Israel will take root. Talking about his roots will be sunk deep into the ground. He will become immovable. He will become as immovable as a massive tree. He refers to the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon is an area north of Israel. Israel's down here at the bottom. I couldn't get all of it on the screen without making it really small. Lebanon is up there. There are two mountain ranges. The ones to the west near the coast are the ones that the Old Testament primarily refers to. The ones on the right are mentioned once or twice. But the main ones are the ones on the left. Those mountains go as high as 10,000 feet into the air. And they stretch for over 100 miles. And they're known for their trees. Primarily their cedar trees. They also have pine and fir and cypress and oak trees. This, the cedar from Lebanon is what Solomon used to build the temple. 1 Kings 6, 1 Kings 10, Ezra 3. When they came back, they built the temple again. They used the cedar of Lebanon. I'm speeding up due to time. These were really strong powerful trees. And the cedar from these trees had this really fragrant aroma that everybody loved. You ever cut wood and you smell it and you're like, ooh, that smells good. If you had a house made of the cedar, your whole house would smell like it. Everybody wanted the cedars of Lebanon. He continues, he says, verse 6, his shoots will sprout the term sprout here is done by the NASB to keep with the agrarian language. The term is actually his shoots will, will walk. The branches will extend out and spread. This is a picture of a plant that's growing and stretching out, spreading its limbs far and wide. Israel will be a prosperous and growing nation. Verse 6 again. And his beauty will be like that of an olive tree. This is kind of confusing. You think of beauty. You and I probably don't think of an olive tree. But olives were a big part of life in Israel. Beauty here refers to the weight, power, splendor, or majesty. And it's often applied to kings. I don't have time to go through them, but uh, 1 Chronicles 29.25 describes this, and it, it's used to describe the king with royal majesty. 
The same term for beauty is also used to apply to Yahweh. 1 Chronicles 16, 27, splendor and majesty, majesty there is the word, are before him. 1 Chronicles 29, 11, same thing. He says, um, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Same word that's described here as beauty. When Yahweh restores the nation of Israel, that same term for the majesty of kings and for the king of kings will also apply to his people, the nation of Israel. And again, olives, olives were primary, they were primary food source. The oil from the olives were, was used to anoint kings. It was a sign of blessing and divine, um, divine blessing on someone. To have an olive tree or to have an olive vineyard was a really good thing. It was a sign of God's blessing. Hosea 14.6 skin and his fragrance like that of the cedars of Lebanon. We already discussed um, the cedars of Lebanon having that fragrant aroma. This is actually love language. This was a way that Solomon used to woo his, his bride. See if this works. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. You smell like wood. Doesn't really work today, does it? But back then, that was a good compliment. That would have been really appealing. Because everybody desired the cedars of Lebanon. Everybody enjoyed that fragrance. And everybody will enjoy and love the splendor and the majesty of Israel when they are fully restored. Hosea 14, 7, those who live in a shadow, living in the shadow of the nation, that is, when Israel returns and they're fully restored, Gentiles will come to the nation of Israel and they will want to live there. And this refers to those who are living in the shadow of Israel. Hosea 14, 7 again, will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. The Gentiles who move into the land will also experience the blessings of Yahweh. They will become prosperous. They will grow grain and corn. And that description, Hosea 2.15, he describes it there as well. He says, Then I will give her her vineyards, and there in the valley of Acre as a door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth. Fully restored. Hosea 14.7, his renown will be like that, the wine of Lebanon. Again, his renown is his fame. He will be known far and wide. Everybody will be talking about Israel. Everybody will be saying, wouldn't it be nice to move to Israel? So when did this occur? It hasn't. It still has yet to occur. Hosea pictures the blessings of Yahweh in metaphoric images, but those metaphoric images are pointing to a literal fulfillment. And I wish I had time to read these passages because they're really good, but we don't have time. Zechariah 12.10 says these promises will come when they look upon him whom they have pierced, when they look upon the Messiah, and then they will receive the promises of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Isaiah 2, um, let's see if I can get to the part that really matters here. 
And all the nations will stream to it. This is Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. And all the nations will stream to it, Israel. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways. And that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Has that ever happened? No, that is not spiritual language. That is a real, actual promise made to the nation of Israel, and it describes the millennial kingdom discussed in Revelation chapter 20. It will be literally fulfilled. I wish I had time. Isaiah 11, there's another good chapter to read. Isaiah 35, I had a whole bunch of verses here to read from there. We don't have time. Zechariah 8, 20-23 also describes this. So many peoples... And mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There's the renown of Israel. Everybody wants to go. Yahweh has one more big thing to say to Israel, because we're pressed for time here. Hosea 14.8, O Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? He's not saying that he ever had anything to do with idols. He's essentially saying, look, I'm sick and tired of talking to you about your idolatry. I've said all I can say. I'm not going to say anything more about your idols. I'm done with those. Those idols have never done anything for you. You need to get rid of them. Hosea 14.8 again, it is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. I'm the one who answered you. I'm the one who gave you the provision. I'm the one who gave you the blessing. I'm the one who made you fertile and prosperous. All of that comes from me. Those idols did nothing for you. So repent. Go back to Yahweh. Turn from your sin. It's the only logical thing for them to do. It's the only wise thing for them to do. Last one. Hosea's purpose. Verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. Whoever is wise and whoever is discerning should know these things. What things? The same question is repeated in Psalm 107, verse 43. Who is wise? Let him give heed to these things and consider the loving kindness of the Lord. True wisdom is listening to Yahweh. True wisdom is listening to and obeying the commands of God. Proverbs 1, 5. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fool in Scripture is the person who rejects the commands of Yahweh. The fool in Scripture is the person who says, I don't need Yahweh in my life. Wisdom hears the words of Yahweh and follows it. 
obeys. Hosea 14.9 again, For the ways of the Lord are right. That is to say, they are straight. They are flat. They do not curve. There's no deceit in them. You're never going to see the road and you're going to be like, okay, is it going that way or that way? His ways include his judgments, his commands, everything that he has said. You can go to Deuteronomy 32, 4. talks about his ways and him being upright. And Israel's ways are anything but. When they follow after their own way, Hosea 10, verse 13, you have plowed wickedness and you have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your way, in your numerous warriors. You can follow after Yahweh, you can go his way, or you can go your own. You can be wise or you can be a fool. End of Hosea 9, or Hosea 14, 9. And the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. First part of that, I don't think I need to explain. Last part, but transgressors will stumble in them. For the righteous, the commands of Yahweh are a blessing, their their peace, their life. But to the wicked, they stumble. And again, this is not talking about stumbling into sin. This is talking about it brings ruin and destruction upon them. Because it's the law and the commands of God by which they are judged. You have two options in this life. And only two. Matthew 7, 13 and 14 say the same thing. There are two ways. You can go after your way or you can go after God's way. One of them leads to life. One of them leads to eternal death. You're on one of those two paths. Which one are you on? All right. That's all I have. And we have two minutes. Questions, comments, anything about Hosea? Any concerns? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this book of Hosea. It's bittersweet as we come to the end of it. I just know from my own personal life and my own personal walk, this study has been such a blessing. And I just, uh, I thank you so much for it. And I thank you for the truth that you have revealed to us in your word and how clear and easy it is for us to understand. And we thank you for the example of Israel and how it's so easy to look to them and see our own sinful lives and our own failures and then to look and see how gracious and kind and compassionate and loving you are to them. And we can trust that because that compassion and mercy is promised to them, through Christ, that we who are in Christ will receive the same mercy and the same compassion. And we thank you so much, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.